Hey everyone, and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out our website, countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and also sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content straight to your inbox. Just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. Now, if streaming is your thing, you can also find us on any streaming platform. So just head over to your favorite, search Country Music Made Me, and give us a follow there as well. On today's episode, we are excited to welcome Brandon Davis. Now, Brandon grew up around music. His father was very musical. He was in a band himself, and he once opened for Garth Brooks a couple of years before Garth really took off. But along the way, Brandon never saw music as a career. He took the smart route. He went to university, he got a degree, he got a good job, and he met the love of his life. He felt like he was living the dream. But a major car accident in 2019 changed everything. He realized he needed to chase his dreams of music. He did that and he has exploded onto the scene over the past two years and he is getting set for the biggest moment of his musical career and that is opening for Tim McGraw on the road this summer. So please enjoy our conversation with Brandon Davis. I've read that you had a musical family obviously your dad was a musician talk about his past and what that looked like because you talk about him opening for garth brooks in 1988 and so what did his career look like before he kind of stepped back from it so with uh with my dad he grew up watching my mama and papa play a lot of gospel music they they toured around doing a lot of different churches and it was him on a guitar, my mama on a tambourine, and my dad, I'm pretty sure, was picking up and playing his first bass in a church band by the time he was 12. Oh, okay. So he, he was always around it. It's something that he caught on to really quick, and anything that had a string, if he picked it up, he found a way to be able to play it. So he, uh, he played a lot of gospel growing up, a lot of country and actually toured around the country with a few of the bigger gospel groups back in the back in the 70s and 80s, like the Hemsman, Kingsman. Uh, several of them became a really big influence on a lot of his writing because he actually wrote a good bit of gospel music. Oh, okay. And him and my uncle actually played all the different local spots here that, well, that used to be the big spots here. We had the Rock and Country Club. We had the Governor's Lounge. We had the Electric Cowboy. Uh, you name it, they were they were hitting up each one of them with a band, and they were they were killing it on the countryside. And I got to see a little bit of that growing up. There wasn't a whole lot of those places, kind of like my kids, that I could really get into. Right. Every chance I got, when when they were like, "Yeah, well, let's just slide in the door for just a second. I was darting in there to be able to see what was going on. But he uh, he wrote songs for so long, and is actually the one that showed me how to write them. And I'm very blessed for that fact because he he showed me the the meaning of putting a story into a song and how that can connect with people. And that's what I try to do with all my music. And it's because of that man right there. And so how did opening for Garth Brooks come about? What did that look like? Was he playing in a different band that opened for Garth or was he leading a band that opened for Garth or what did that look like? 
Well, my dad was the lead singer that night, and uh, they were the opening act at the Governor's Lounge the night that Garth Brooks came through before he was really like the Garth Brooks. Oh, okay. And nobody, uh, nobody really knew what to expect out of that night, and my dad didn't know who the guy was yet, so he wasn't you know, having that moment of, oh, this is who I'm getting open for. He's just like, oh, well, some guy named Garth Brooks is coming to town. He's going to be the headliner tonight, and they're wanting us to play, so... Let's just go open for him. Oh, okay. That, that's what he did. And he said, you know, I'll be darned if a couple of years later, I'm not looking at it saying, that's the guy we were opening for that night. And what's crazy is that all these years later, for that night in particular, my dad went and bought a brand new resist all cowboy hat, this black cowboy hat with like a, had a steel band and a feather band that would go around it. And he was like, I spent all this money on that hat because they wanted us to dress nice for this show. And he, uh, he wore it that night. And I think one other night other than that, it's sat in the box since 1988 up in my uncle's house. And all these years later, my uncle come walking up with this great big old box and said, here, I want you to have this. And I opened it up. My dad looked at me and said, well, that hat was bought to play a opener for Garth Brooks back in 88. And he said, now. You can see who you uh, who you're able to wear it for when you open. Like, you oh know, wow! It's like it's yours for the taking. So all these years later, that hat's still got life, and it's still sitting right here up in the house in my closet. That is amazing. And you're more of a ball cap guy, but yeah. when you hit the road with Tim McGraw, will you maybe break out that cowboy hat to carry that tradition I on? I don't know. We might uh might have a little bit of a reveal coming. Who uh, who's to tell? Awesome. Enter the how, but we got some plans. That is amazing. And so, when you were young, what did your dad's musical career look like, and how did that influence you in those first, you know, five, six, seven years of your life that you can remember? So, whenever we were growing up, my dad played a lot of music late at night, throughout the night, and would almost kind of sing till the early hours of the morning, come home, barely get an hour or so of sleep, get up, go to work and work all day, and then start the process over again that night. And played a lot of baseball growing up too. And that was, that had a good bit to do with it as well. You know, making as much money as he could to make sure he could support anything that I was wanting to chase, whether that be sports, music, what have you. And for me, it was just really cool to know like, Hey, guess what? My dad's getting up on stage tonight. Now, I watch my kids thinking of it the same way, and I try to give them every chance they can to get up on the stage, which I thought would kind of stage fright them a little bit. Right. Apparently not. You put them in front of a, you know, several hundred people, and they're just like, yep, I'm going to do what he does. I'm going to get on the mic and let it rip. <laughs> but that influence comes directly from having that same childhood, watching my dad do all these things with music and being able to pass that same tradition on to my kids to say, look, this is what I love. This is what I'm passionate about, just like your pops was. And, you know, maybe one day this is something that you end up doing the same thing. That's awesome. And you've talked about the fact that you basically have had a guitar in your hand for as long as you can remember. And so what are the first memories you have of picking up a guitar and just having that feeling of how awesome it was to have it in your hand? One of the first memories I have that I really like remember vividly was it was probably one of my best days and saddest days, to be honest, because I was uh, 
I was in third grade and my papa had asked me to come down to his living room studio that he had down in front of the house. And we were going to record whatever I wanted. It didn't matter what the song was. He was going to break out his guitar. I was going to break out mine. He was going to pop a cassette tape in the recording deck and we were going to record something. And I can't remember every single song we played, but I do remember the last one. And the last one, he pulled out a, uh, he pulled out a blue Takamini guitar. One of the most beautiful things I'd seen at the time. Cause I was a big Dodgers fan and that was pretty blue. And he played you are my sunshine. That was the very last song that he sang on that tape. And unfortunately the next day he had to be rushed to the hospital and my papa all ended up passing away. Oh, wow. But the memory that I got to have spending that whole day doing nothing but playing music. I mean, on a little first act guitar that I couldn't even make a chord on, but just getting to have all that, all that time, just flogging, flogging on the strings and belting out whatever I could sing, which I'm pretty sure at the time that, and don't, don't get me wrong. I'm a fan of Greece, but I'm not as big of a fan now as I was when I was in third grade. Let's put it that way. I was singing all kinds of songs from the movie Grease, like John Travolta, because I thought he was a cool guy. And that that was one of the best, best times that I can ever remember, especially being one of the first to have ever picked up a guitar. That That's amazing. Like, it, it gives you chills, just those moments that it was meant to be, right? You were meant to be in that studio for that day with him because of what was to come. It's just, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's uh, it was a blessing that I couldn't even understand at the time. And I look back now and it really hits. And do you still have that tape? I do. It's, it's at my parents' house. I don't have it with me, but they, they do. That's amazing. And so with all of that music around you, When's the first time that you can remember like music really becoming something more, something more than maybe just listening to it in the car or in your bedroom, but something that really resonated within you and made you feel feelings? You know, the first I, I think I've I think I've said this story more times than I can count, but it kind of hit me the same way that it it hit my dad, but it hit him like a revelation of really bringing that feeling back to him. And that, that was with the song Chiseled in Stone by Vern Gostin. Because he was driving me to baseball practice, I believe, and we were in his truck, and he had a, he had a CD of Vern Gostin. He popped it in and said, look, I want you to listen to this song and really understand the words and the story that he's telling the entire time that he sings it. And I sat back and listened, and it just kind of blew me away, like how – song could literally paint an entire picture in my head as to what I was seeing the guy singing about, even though there was nothing in front of me to do that. And my dad said that this is how it hit me. He said, I was, you know, back in the eighties, I heard this song come on the radio and I was on my way back home. And he said, it was the middle of the night, but I just pulled the truck over on the side of the road. He said, cause I didn't want to be distracted. I just want to keep listening. And that was, that was my moment like listening to that song that not only brought my dad into just an, a trance of, wow, what am I listening to? But me as well. Right. That's awesome. And I wanted to ask you growing up in Chattanooga about highway 58 
I saw you mention that and sort of the memories that that brings back. Just talk about that highway and what that means for your journey and some of the memories you have from it that just makes it so special. Man, that that highway was what I ran up and down from the times I was being carpooled with my mother to get where I had to go all the way till I was, you know, driving my little 97 Buick LeSabre or my 03 Ranger. Like I was, I was barreling down that highway trying to get anywhere that I thought any of my friends were going to be anywhere. I could find somebody to play a little bit of ball with. And and in fact, I mean, it, that highway leads all the way out just about to the little Opry house that we started back in 2010 out in Birchwood, Tennessee too. And so much life has been lived on that road because it's the road to learn to drive on. It's the road that I was told never to go near when I was little. Otherwise, I couldn't play in the front yard by myself. It was a road that I finally broke that rule and crossed whenever I discovered there was a creek and a cave and everything else I could explore on the other side of it. It's it's the road that led out to led out to the lake. It's the road that led to every school that I went to from grade school all the way to high school. And, you know, there there's so many memories I could go through and just keep pouring out and pouring out and pouring out. But the bottom line is it, it's got, you know, it's got a good 18 years of my life locked in a, locked in a stretch of asphalt and white lines. And so that highway, when you're songwriting, how often do you go back to those times? Quite a bit. I've got an entire song that we just got done dedicating to that highway called Tennessee 58. That's awesome. And the performance side of things, I saw you talk about singing to some of the country greats, like Merle Haggard's greatest hits was, I think, one you mentioned singing along to for hours. And so just the performance side, even just within your bedroom or within the house, when did that start to take over for you? Man, I've done it all my life. Like there's a picture that my mother cherishes with everything she has of me when I was probably two or three years old holding a wooden guitar that was supposed to be a wall decoration that just said, I love country music on it. And I was grabbing that guitar after watching how my dad sang and trying to imitate the way that I saw him singing. So it's just a picture of me holding this thing, acting like I'm strumming it, just (laughs) wide open, eyes closed, trying to belt out whatever that two-year-old was thinking about at the time. And I mean, that it never stopped. I, I was always famous for riding around in the truck, singing and writing songs. It's in fact, it's the way I wrote songs for a good, I don't know, probably 10 years of my life. And it's, it's just crazy to, to think back to all the different times that I would be, you know, cranking up a cassette tape and singing Elvis, or I'd be riding in the car down with my mom and dad to Panama city singing Merle Haggard's 16 biggest hits word for word as my mom got aggravated when I wanted to start it over. (laughs) It's, it's, it's something that I don't think it's ever going to stop. It's now I get to watch my kids do it. Like my, my daughter and my son, especially my youngest son, they, they run around the house singing constantly. If I ever get uh, my two-year-old in the truck, he can sing louder than the radio, no matter how loud I crank it. So it, it's it's a blessing that I hope I've, I've passed on to my kids and that they get to enjoy. That is amazing. And now let's talk about that sort of inspiration of music. And as we've talked, it's probably hard for people to believe that you didn't 
you know, leave high school and move to Nashville and chase this music thing. But that's not something that you did for people who don't know your story. It might be surprising, but growing up with all this musical inspiration around you, was there a time when you thought you wanted to chase it? And then a time where it was like, nope, that's not going to happen. Like, was there a switch somewhere within your childhood where that went off? Well, my dad told me, actually back, I believe, when I was in high school, uh, the time back in, I think it was 80, between 85 and 87, he had a guy that offered him a chance to come up to Nashville, sit in with a studio band, record three songs. The guy was going to pay for all the production, get it all taken care of, um, get all the vinyl made, sent out, and pitch my dad to you know, whatever record labels that the guy had connections with. So my dad did that. He went up, took that chance. He said it was amazing. Get to play with these guys. He said, everybody just picked up on the songs. Like it was nothing. He said, I really felt like a professional for a day. Right. He said, and then we got done. I went back, you know, I had a, I had an eight track that he sent me with that I got to keep a copy of. And like, and then I never, never heard from it. So and I figured, well, that means the guy either took off and didn't want to fool with me. He said, or maybe I'm just not good enough. And so my dad went from chasing it as a profession to just chasing it as a means of doing what he loved. Oh, okay. And for him, that was, that was good. He just enjoyed music too much. He didn't want to quit it. He just didn't want to be the one getting his dreams crushed. And for me, I was like, well, wow, you know, if it's, if I knew how my dad sang. I was like, if they didn't want him, they ain't gonna want me. Ain't nobody gonna be chasing after this guy. I was like, but if I do want to try, like, how do I even do it? You know, what? How do you get a song you wrote to somebody that wants to hear it? How do you sing in front of somebody that might take you somewhere? And I didn't know the avenue. I didn't know the business. I didn't know where to go to even get started. But I knew I could play baseball, and I knew that I loved doing stuff in engineering. And at the time, those were the two things I went after and just kept music as the hobby. But the revelation kind of hit me again in college saying, you know what, let's let's just give songwriting a chance. Maybe I don't have to be the artist. Maybe I can be the guy behind the song and just see what happens. And I, I sent off a little five track demo CD that I burned from a uh, voice recorder that I recorded me and my guitar on of five different songs tapped them up, sent them off to Paramount song for the submission that they had. Right. Submit however many songs, if they liked them, they'd get back in touch with you. And they sent me back a contract that they wanted for those songs. And I was like, Oh, that's great. That's awesome. What do I need to do? They said, you just got to pay us $200 per song and we're going to get somebody to sing them and play them. And then we'll try to pitch them. If anybody wants them, I was like, I'll work a part-time job at tractor supply and that's two paychecks. I was like, that ain't, I ain't got that to, to do. I got to have gas in the car, food to eat. And I was like, plus my daddy told me that, you know, if somebody loves what you do, they're not going to make you pay them to do something. You know, they're going to bring you in and want to work with you. And they said, well, that's just not how we work on this. I said, well, then I guess, you know, burn the CD and shred the papers and I'll try again at a different date. I said, appreciate y'all and have a good one. And I just thought from there, you know, let's just move past it. Keep with, keep with getting this degree. And I went after that stable job and managed to land it. 
and a little further down the road, met the woman of my dreams, managed to land her. And she came with two parts of my heart that now I've gotten to watch grow from little babies all the way to a seven and a six year old, which still blows my mind. But I thought I had what I needed. I had the job and I had the family. You know, what what more can a man want? But that uh that's that's kind of how it felt, you know. How do you chase after something you don't know how to chase for and that people really don't give you an avenue to? Right. And now before we get to the reason that you are chasing it, you mentioned the two two little angels that came along with your wife. You are a bonus dad. I want to just get your feelings on being a bonus dad and when it was like, oh man, they're not mine, but yes, they are mine. And I love them more than, you know, country music. Man, so the first time I got to meet either of them, it was just my son. And I was helping my wife and, well, at the time, girlfriend helping them and her mom paint their new house. They just moved into to rent. And in the back room, when I got there, she had already been painting all the walls and she was trying to paint the corners. And I look on the floor and there's, there's little Brantley. Uh, we call him still call him to this day, still call him Bubba, but there was Bubba running around the floor, just crawling as fast as, as fast as he could go from one corner to the next. And I saw that all the paint was wet. So I spent the next hour of my first meeting you know, getting to meet my boy and pulling him away from the corners, putting him back in the middle of the room. He'd fall off, pull him away from the corner, put him back in the middle of the room. And finally, I, I couldn't get him to stay away from the paint. So I was just like, you know what, come here. Picked him up and I laid down on the ground, just put him on my chest. And this, this, little, this little angel that God sent to me that I'd never met before in my life that day looked down at me and changed my entire world because it was me looking at, at the rest of my life, like looking at this kid made me realize that, wow, like I just literally found something I didn't even know I'd lost. And here, here it is like this, this is what I'm meant for right here. Like you are it dude. Like I'm so thankful that I'm getting to be here. And now I've watched, this little kid that I pulled in and out of the corners to keep from touching paint that's turning six years old tomorrow, grow up to be an amazing young man. And he surprises me every day. And the same with my daughter. I mean, one of the first times getting to be around her was giving her a Valentine's day gift. That was this big old like dinosaur looking stuffed animal that I found at Walmart. And it was twice her size, but she I wanted nothing more than to drag this thing from the car into the house, all the way up the steps while she fought with it. I just, I looked and couldn't believe, couldn't believe that something so small could make you feel so much love. Like you never understand the kind of love that you have for anyone until you start loving your kids. That's awesome. So in your life, you have a good job. You have an amazing family. You think you have it all. And then February 28th of 2019, everything changes in the flash of an eye. You are hit head on by a distracted driver. You're rushed to the hospital. They discover that you have three lacerations to your liver and a ruptured colon. And 
you have to go under emergency surgery or else you probably aren't going to make it the night. So within that experience, it's a huge one. Tell me the last thing you remember before the accident and the first thing you remember after. So the last thing I remember was I was behind a white truck and had a green light to go, started pulling through. And as soon as I got just a quarter of the way into my turn, all I can remember is lights got real bright right in front of me and it was headlights coming straight at me. I remember the impact and it felt like a, a movie as corny and cheesy as it sounds. It felt like a movie and everything just seemed to slow down. Like I could watch everything crunching in on me, all the glass and the plastic and the metal flying around. And next thing I know, the car stops. I hit the airbag pops, hits me in the face. And to me, I thought it was boom, you got hit, boom, the car stopped. And then, Hey, I'm getting out. But apparently it was me sitting there for, you know, 20 to 40 minutes unconscious. I don't know exactly how long. And by the time I woke up, I finally uh, finally started hearing a tapping on the window. And it's the first thing I remember when I did wake up was an off-duty cop tapping on the window saying, look, I'm glad to know you're okay, you're awake. Can you unlock the door, unbuckle your seatbelt? We're going to pry this thing open and get you out. And, you know, you think you're fine at the time. You haven't really gotten up and moved around to feel whether or not you are okay. But I just knew my nose hurt from the airbag. And I buckled my seatbelt, unlocked the car, helped him shut the door open, had the engine kind of sitting in my lap. So I had to shimmy out from under there and finally got out. I kind of looked around, realizing what all had happened. And about the time I realized how bad my car was, that's when I realized how bad I was because shock, adrenaline, everything wore off. And down I went. And from there, it was just trying to, trying to grit your teeth. And act like everything's okay until you get to the hospital and they can tell you what all isn't okay. Did you learn how bad it was before your surgery? No. So they did a bunch of scans and tests and put me back in a bed and said, look, you know, we're not seeing much. We see a little bit of uh, what looks like a laceration on your liver. But aside from that, you should be good. You know, we're not seeing anything on the screen and the laceration that'll heal itself. And I said, okay, so what, what do we need to do next? I said, well, we're going to have to take you for a scope because there's things those scanners can't pick up. And to me, I thought, you know, Hey, let's, we're going to go in here. They're going to do two different locations for a scope. I'll wake up. I'll be good. Be out of here next day or so. And when I woke up, that was not the case. And I had a, a cut from uh, about midway down my abdomen, down below my belly button. And I, a folder that pretty much said, Hey, here's what we had to do. And here's why. And they, uh, they explained it all to me. They had to go straight to my wife while I was un under the scope and say, Hey, look, we have to do this or he's going to go septic and he's gone. And so they did what they had to do. And thankfully they did because I wouldn't be here if they hadn't, but it's, it was a scary moment. You wake up and something you didn't expect is all of a sudden just there. And you're trying to really wrap your head around it all because number one, the wreck happened. Number two, now this has happened. I was trying to process it. And all I could think was, you know, why, why did this have to happen? I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. 
you know, of, of anything that could have happened to me today, why did this have to be what happened? But all my wife told me repeatedly was, you don't understand it now, I promise, one day you're going to. It's going to make sense. And not, not for a while, but it's going to make sense. And the entire time she said that, all I could think was, you know, there's so much I haven't done. Like I just about lost any chance that I had at furthering any of my dreams or, you know, reaching goals that I'd set that I still hadn't achieved. And yet I'm sitting here telling my kids every day to do exactly that while I'm kind of just running around in a circle. How long did it take you to overcome the mental side of the crash? And the thought that you almost didn't make it through that night, was it a long process of sort of coming to terms with that and overcoming that thought? You know, it wasn't so much trying to overcome the thought of why it happened, because once I got out, the only thing I wanted to focus on was what was next and how could I get myself in a state that I could start pushing towards it. And when I got out, and got back home and started to somewhat feel like I could at least move around again. And things started to feel a little bit more normal. All I did was push myself to, to get better, to get past anything that was holding me back from that. And I told her, look, you know, there's stuff I haven't done and it's a, tr it's a true fact, but I'm going to have to start chasing them. I said, and I think the one I want to chase after the most is music. I said, because I, there's, I've got a phone and a notebook and old self phones and everything full of songs that nobody but a few people out in Birchwood, Tennessee have heard. I said, I need to be able to share this stuff with people. And she said, okay, well, if you want to do it, then let's start doing it. And thankfully, that's exactly what we did. And so you have this motivation to do this because of what happened. But when you were looking at it and the sort of reality of starting a country music career. Like you say, when you were younger, you didn't know how to start. You had no idea where to go and what to do. And so at this point, when you have this motivation, was there also a scary part to it, an anxiety part to it of, I want to start this, but how the heck do I do it? Oh yeah, man. I, I was still back at ground zero. I had no idea what we were going to get out of what we were chasing. I just knew I wanted to chase it. And we went kind of the, I guess what at the time was the typical route. We made a Facebook page for it. We created a YouTube channel for it and started posting videos that my wife would film on you on YouTube. And then we transfer those videos, post them up on Facebook. And we started calling anywhere that did live music locally and started asking around to see if anyone would let me come and play a set. Luckily, we had several people that took us up on the live offers. We had some hits on YouTube, a few more on Facebook. One, uh, the Chris, this one Christmas song I put out really kind of registered with some folks and at the time got like 4,000 views, which to me was huge. I thought that was amazing to see 4,000 people had listened to my song. That was more than I ever dreamed of. And unfortunately, as soon as we got into this in we really hadn't gotten anywhere yet. We were just playing local shows and posting to whoever might listen online. COVID hit. Right. And right in the midst of a pandemic where I'm feeling like, hey, I've got live shows. People are watching me too. Well, they're not doing live music anymore. So there went that. And we were uh, 
just kind of stagnant on social media at the time. We didn't have anything kind of taken off and the audience wasn't huge, but it was there. But then as the pandemic progressed, more people started getting on their phones as did my wife. And she was like, well, you know what? I've been, been researching something and I think I got a new avenue for us. And I asked her what that was. She says, TikTok. I said, Nope. <laughs> Sorry. Like that, that, I've, I've seen the app. She goes, what do you mean you've seen the app? I was like, well, I've seen ads on Facebook. I was like, everything they show is just people doing these wild and crazy looking dances and, or showing like somebody trying to be funny or do a magic trick. I was like, I got two left feet and dad jokes. Ain't nobody going to want me on that app. And she, it took her a while to convince me. She How long was it? Ah, let's see. She probably started. She probably started getting me interested or trying to pique my interest on it in about late April to the start of May. And that entire month of May, she was like, get on it, get on it. There's all these people on it. I was like, nope, I'm good. We've got Facebook and YouTube. I was like, they only give you 60 seconds on TikTok. What am I going to do with 60 seconds? Songs are three and four minutes. And she said, it doesn't have to be a whole song. You don't have to sing for that long. And I was like, well, I like everybody to hear the whole thing. She goes, well, nobody listens to the whole thing. And finally, she had me cornered. It was Father's Day, June twenty, uh, June of 2020. She said, I'm breaking out my phone and I'm filming you. I don't care what you sing. You just sing while I record. Sound good? I was like, yeah, sure. So she got a few videos on the way home and we got home and she made a couple more. And the next night, I'm just trying to grab a bottle of water. And she, I hear her come like running up behind me, hollering, baby, baby, baby. I turn around like, yeah. She's like, you see me, Brad Paisley? And I just pretty much did what I was told. She said, Brad Paisley, I'd sing a Brad Paisley song. She said, Dirk Bentley, I'd do that. And then Chris Stapleton and so on. And she was all the while taking these videos she was taking of me and posting them to TikTok and trying to see what she could get. And next thing you know, she wakes up and says, hey, look, I did this. And I looked and I was like, Oh, wow, that one's got 1,600 views. She goes, yep. All you had to do was just sit there and drink a bottle of water in front of the bridge. So see how easy it can be? 1,600 views. That's more than you've gotten in two months. I was like, yeah, that's great. And I was like, well, what, what's that? What's the login? I'll, I'll log in and just see what it's about. See if I can get on. And I got on it, got to work, started thumbing through it, and clicked over to the page and looked at what the views were. And I freaked out and called her. I was like, that video's at 20,000 views. <laughs> That's crazy, ain't it? I was like, yeah, this is awesome. And by the end of the day, you know, next thing I know, this thing's hitting a million views. And I never understood how it happened like that. I don't know. I, I don't know how to describe the feeling that it gave me, realizing that, hey, all of a sudden you've got a lot of people watching what you're doing. But the fan base started growing crazy after that. We went from no followers to within a couple of weeks, you know, we had over 180,000 followers and growing. And I think within the first month we hit 300K and she looked at me and she goes, look, all this is really taking off. There's a lot of people watching you right now and people requesting your original music, wanting to hear more covers, wanting to see you at shows. 
if you're going to do this, it needs to be now. So the question is, do you or do you not want to chase after this? Because if you do, let's get serious about it. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And so what did that look like? Because even at that point, yes, you have this fan base on TikTok, but did you still have any thought of how to turn that into success and how to turn that into something within the business of country music? Not, not yet. We had not figured it out. We still didn't even know how to record music yet. Like I knew how my dad did it growing up. I knew how my uncle did it. But to get a song that you fully recorded that sounded like radio sounded and get that out and distributed to where you actually have a song on like iTunes or Amazon Music, we had no idea what to do. And we just started asking any and everybody, you know, how do we how do we do this? What's the steps it takes? And thankfully, a producer reached out that was uh, based in Nashville, originally from Ohio, and his name was Jacob Frisch. He said, look, man, I love what you're doing. been watching your TikTok and now your Instagram grow. And we would, I, I would just love to have the chance to work with you. He's like, if I can produce a song for you, I would love to. And I'll, you know, I won't charge a production fee. I'll just get you some uh, musicians to get on the track. That'll be that. I was like, that's good because I got, I'm strapped, man. I can't. I can't hardly afford to get this music recorded because what I do for a day job is what's paying the bills and TikTok ain't paying no extra. Right. He, uh, he said, well, let's, let's figure out the song you want to do and let's make it happen. And November of 2020, we got to release our very first single. In fact, my wife actually pulled up a YouTube video to learn how to run pro tools <laughs> just to record my vocal. And we went and bought all this little, uh, the recording equipment we could that was basic enough to get us by which the mic i used for that first song i'll still never believe we got the sound out of it we did thankfully my my producer was good at not making a cheap mic sound cheap right but we we just did what we had to do we recorded the vocals in the master bedroom closet here in the house set up a mattress and some blankets on the walls and kind of made it our own little recording booth and made it happen he pulled the musicians in and next thing you know, we've got a single out for the entire world to listen to. And I was over the moon. Like I could look myself up on iTunes and there I was. And that was when this TikTok and Instagram, this whole social media journey kind of started to transform a little bit to say, well, now we actually have music. We're not just somebody singing covers or somebody singing video singing in videos online of original songs like they can go look up this song and play it that was a, that was a big turning point and you talked about growing up and your dad having the bad experience in the industry and then you with your demo songs trying to get them somewhere and having someone tell you that you have to pay to do that and so when you had Jacob approach you and say, I'm going to do this for you for free. I'm not going to make you pay for the production of it. How did that make you feel in that moment of finally having someone trusting in your music that they were going to do this for you and they weren't necessarily asking for something in return this time? Man, it was, it was hearing my dad's words all over again. Like if they believe in you, they're not going to ask you you know to pay for something that you're going to be putting your heart soul into 
And it, when Jacob said that he would comp the production, I was like, this is just right. Like, this is what it's supposed to be. It's like, I know it ain't going to be this way every time, but this is the moment. This is my chance. Let's take it. And God, I mean, listening to that song to this day is still, it brings chills to my spine just because I know what we were able to do and how we were able to do it. And I've, I've been using Jacob ever since. He has become uh, one of my top producers that we use on all these tracks. He's actually the producer on the song we just released, Hearts Don't Rust. And he's become a very, very dear friend to me. And what's crazy is I still haven't met the guy in person, which I hate to say. <laughs> oh, wow. In this COVID and digital age that we fell into back in 2020, it's uh, it's everything's been through FaceTime and Zoom, but you know, I, I swear the first time I do meet him in person, it's going to be like I've known him my whole life because you you find these connections through social media, through this growth, through the fact that you don't know anybody, but somebody wants to network with you, and all of a sudden, this little spider web of this like village of people you build of songwriters, producers, musicians, and you know this guy knows somebody else that's connected with music. Who's going to connect you with them. And you build this entire family around you that at first, if you hadn't have just done one thing, like post a video to TikTok or, you know, start a Instagram account for your music stuff like that doesn't just fall in your lap. It's, it happens and it takes just putting yourself out there. And thankfully we put ourselves out there and the right people reached out and, here we are two, almost two years into it with more friends and family from it than we could have ever imagined. And that five song demo that you did in college that you sent off to try and get some traction on, are there any songs from that that have made it into this career that you have either recorded or that you plan on recording in the future? One, one did make it. And uh, that one is called Back Home. And I haven't recorded it fully yet, but we did get to go up to a studio uh, with Yesterday's Country and Warm Audio. And we actually put together a acoustic video for that one and got to put it on YouTube. And back in the crazy story behind it is back in 2011, when I graduated at Chattanooga Central, we always had a senior prophecy. And the senior prophecy was where they picked out different students from the senior class and told everybody in 10 years where they believed everyone would be. Right. And right. I, always, I always thought back then they were going to say that my prophecy was going to be around baseball or sports because that's what I was mainly known for in high school. I sang in the talent show, but that was like once a year. And the senior prophecy for them was Brandon, Brandon Davis's song, Back Home, has gone gold, and he is uh, – traveling the country, playing his music to everyone, but still finds time to come back to Harrison Bay to sing around a bonfire with his friends. And it was crazy to hear that back then, but looking at what we're doing now, even though Back Home isn't a song that went gold, the rest of it did come true. We are traveling the country playing music, and we do still find time to just hang out and you know, kick back and have a little jam session with our friends. But it, it never would have dreamed that that, whole thing would come full circle from a prophecy that was supposed to be a joke. 
That is amazing. And now with your debut album, it's a very diverse album with a lot of different emotions throughout. And it is awesome to see you capture that. And it's also awesome to see you capture it within your sound because your sound, it's really, it feels like it's sticking to the traditionalists that you grew up on, that you talked about singing in the car. And so is that important to you to really be able to keep your sound within this industry as a new artist and not be sort of dragged over by what people want to hear or people telling you, you should sound like this or you should sound like that? It is real important to me just because I was raised on a certain kind of country. And I know the kind of country I was raised on isn't, you know, everybody's cup of tea. It's not going to be the most modern or up-to-date version of, uh, you know, what you're going to hear on the radio. But I, I, tr- I like to think I take what I grew up on and give it a whole, a whole new spin by saying, look, this isn't just me trying to rehash old country. This isn't me trying to make a, a splice between old and new. This is me saying this is my style of country. And it's a mixture of what I was raised on with what I want everyone to feel like they enjoy. And that's where my sound falls is right there in its own, it's its own lane. It's not trying to be anybody else. It's not trying to say that I'm bringing Merle Haggard back or I'm trying to be, you know, the next Brooks and Dunn. I'm just, I'm, I'm here trying to show y'all, how I, how I want to sing it, how we want to write it. And that we hope at the end of the day, when you hear it, you're like, man, that hits me right in the gut. And if that brings everybody to a little bit of a nineties nostalgic feel throughout these songs, then I'm definitely hitting the nail on the head. Cause that's, that's my generation. That's awesome. And now within this career, you have blown up on TikTok, and a lot of the headlines that you see online are TikTok sensation. And now within this industry, because TikTok is so new, is there a divide within being a country artist and being a TikTok artist, do you find? Or is it one and the same right now within the industry? I feel like it's really become one and the same. It was, a, it was kind of a tidal wave of something brand new there for a minute that I feel like shocked a lot of people. Yeah. But the industry sees what everybody else is seeing. And they're seeing the fact that it's a tool. It's mm-hmm. just like anything else. It's like a commercial on the radio. It's like, you know, having a flyer sitting up at the counter at a restaurant. It's a means of promoting what you have as a product and saying, here I am. Here's where you can find me. Here's what I got going on. And this is the means I'm d- using to be able to kind of transfer that information to everybody else. And for us, it's, it's gone from at the start, really trying to just share as much music and everything as possible to, you know, what we live a life that's full of music. We live a life of constantly writing songs and, you know, kids being crazy and trying to keep up with everything in between. So we've went from sharing what, what you want to try and, okay, best way to describe this we went from trying to create content to just letting ourselves share the content we already had that right makes sense. yeah life be the content that we've got to share 
And even if that's her popping out of a bedroom and scaring me half to death, hollering, hey, baby, when I'm walking through the house thinking that everything's good and nothing's going to happen, you know, even if it's just that, her catching me off guard, telling me to sing or us listening to a song that we've been waiting to hear the final production on in the car, it's, you know, singing with my boy up on stage. It's whatever life is creating at that moment. And that's what I love about social media now is that we just get to share who we are. We don't have to go through telling people, hey, we created this really cool character over here that if you go on TikTok, you can see it there and then come to a live show and I'll just play play some music. We just get to say, this is me. And if you come out to the show, you're going to get to see me. Right. We appreciate you being involved in everything we got going. And that's that's amazing on my part because there's so many people that have come in showing that love and support and telling us how much just us sharing parts of our day or us giving them something hopeful or something that makes them smile like that. That's what it's all about. We've connected with people through this platform on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. And when you touch somebody, just because you're able to share something with them that otherwise might not have been there to maybe brighten their day or, you know, maybe change their mind on a, on a doubtful thought that they were having, it really makes you feel good. And it makes you feel like you're accomplishing something more than just doing something for yourself. And life is going to be creating some pretty awesome moments for you coming up here pretty quick as you hit the road with Tim McGraw. Now, have you wrapped your head around this yet? Do you fully understand what is about to happen? We're getting there. I'm, uh, I'm about halfway through all the, all the fanboying over here, trying to make sure that I realize, Hey, you're going on tour with your childhood music idol. And, uh, you know, it's no big deal. You're you're just going to get up there and do what you always done. You're going to get up there and sing on a stage in front of quite a few more people than you've ever sang in front of. And you're going to be with, you know, some of the best artists that are out there on the market right now doing all this. But at, I think the biggest thing of it all is that I'm realizing, hey, this is somebody that I have watched since I was young that has accomplished so much in his career that had faith enough in what I'm doing to say, you know what? I want you to come out on tour with me and I'm going to give you a shot to do what you love in front of a lot more people. And that's it's an honor. And that that's where I finally started to reel it in and say, this is crazy but it's just something that is so special and I can't wait to experience it. That is awesome. And one last thing with all this success that you're seeing, what does your dad think? What are his feelings within this journey? Finally seeing someone within the family grab this attention and grab this success and see what you're doing. Man, it blows him away constantly. And he's he's always we, – we have a routine that every single day, 7.30 in the morning, he calls me and talks to me from the time he leaves his house all the way till he gets to work. And I he's always asking for updates. What's going on? What are you doing? Where are you – you know, you when, when's your next song coming out? When are you playing your next show? What are, you, what are they uh, talking about up in Nashville? Have you been up to Nashville? Are you going to be going up to Nashville here soon? And he is always about getting that news, and I – having him involved and being able to share, especially when it comes to sharing how everything works nowadays as compared to when he was really hot and heavy for it back there in the eighties. It's, it's special because he's getting to see my insider part of it that 
I get to share with him where I was asking all these same questions when I was growing up, like, how did it happen for you? What were you doing? And, you know, how did, how did you ever get the shot? What, what does it take to get there? And now sharing with him all these songs we've wrote after years of watching him and uh, his buddy Peabody and so many others write songs. It was, it was special to me back then to watch his life kind of roll out in front of me through all the memories and stories. And now I get to do the same thing for him sharing my entire life and all the memories and stories as we've really just got started on this journey. And it's, it's, it's a full circle thing. That is amazing. Well, the album Hearts Don't Rust is out April 15th. People can catch you on tour with Tim McGraw this summer. And you also have local shows happening. If people check out your website for more dates and congratulations on all the success and everything you have going on. And the fact that you're finally able to live your dreams after all these years. Absolutely. It's going to be a, it's going to be a great year. 2022 is uh we're just getting kicked off and there's a whole lot more to come between now and the end of this one Thank you once again so much for listening and thank you to Brandon for stopping by and sharing his story. Be sure to check out Hearts Don't Rust when it's available in April. Please also be sure to check out our website, countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and also sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content. Just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. You can also find us on any streaming platform. So if streaming is your thing, just head over to your favorite, search Country Music Made Me and give us a follow there as well. Thanks so much once again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Country Music Made Me. Music